Mabel Francis was an American missionary who went to Japan in 1909 to minister to the Japanese people, give her life to them. She was there during the dark days of the Great Depression, World War I, and the difficult days leading up to World War II. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the Americans went into World War II, she made the difficult decision that she was going to stay in Japan and serve the Japanese people, win or lose, she was going to be there during the war and after the war. She had already won the respect of the local police department and the local government officials But as the war dragged on, she was eventually put under house arrest. Mabel decided that she was going to turn her little home into a makeshift hospital. And so all of the broken people that she knew of that came her way, she just took care of them out of her home. Later on in the war, the difficult decision was made that she be put into a prisoner of war camp. And though she was never mistreated, as the war lingered on, she became more malnourished, some days not having any food, and she started to deteriorate in health. Toward the end of the war, the Allies were bombing Tokyo mercilessly, and one night a bomb hit the building adjacent to where she was as a prisoner of war. The fire spread, and her jailers took her and the rest of the prisoners of war out into the streets. And it was then that Mabel saw something she couldn't believe. She looked all around, and Tokyo was literally burning to the ground in rubble. And she saw children whose parents had died just wandering the streets. Broken men were wandering the streets and women were just weeping, not knowing what to do. She herself was so malnourished to the point of breaking that she cried out to God. She opened up her Bible and her eyes fell on Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord cover the whole earth to see who to strengthen those who are fully committed to Him. And that verse was taken into her soul and it changed her life. She wrote a biography some years later And in it she said of that night, in that verse, these words. The eyes of the Lord, He knows where the money is and where our help is coming from. This was to be our source of strength all through those days as one miracle followed another. Mabel stayed in post-war Japan. She teamed up with a Japanese pastor from First United Methodist Church in Tokyo 
And they started holding gospel concerts each night after the war. Now, the first United Methodist Church had been hit by a bomb and the roof had been taken off. And that actually ended up being a blessing because the gospel concert sounds ended up floating all over Tokyo and hundreds of people came in to listen to the music and hear a gospel presentation and were saved. At the same exact time, thousands upon thousands of GIs were pouring into Tokyo and many of them had a very wonderful, deep and meaningful relationship with the Lord and she teamed up with those GIs and started the GI Gospel Hour, which led to the founding of the Far Eastern Gospel Crusade, which is today known as Send International, that supports over 600 missionaries, over 20 Asian countries. Not bad for a little old lady in her 70s. Thank you, Alan Hare who is 80-something. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Some of you are in your own battle zone. And what I mean by that is, some of you are really struggling. You're struggling in your marriage. There's more hitting than missing. You're struggling in your job. You don't like your job. You like your job, but it's not enough money. You're without a job. You're underemployed. Some of you are struggling with your kids, and it's the dailiness of just trying to figure out how to raise your kids. Some of you have adult children, and you're thinking, I thought raising kids was a challenge. Wait till you get to adult children. And all of the complexities that are involved in that. When do you know when to step in? When do you know when to let them live with their consequences? And it's just a real struggle. And here's what I've come to find. I've come to find that good, godly people sometimes just get so worn down by the daily activities of life. And it's just one thing after another. You could handle one difficult situation. But it's not the one difficult situation. It's the two and three and four and five that are piled up on top of you. And you just get to a point where you're like, I I don't know what to do. I can't take anymore. And you need some extra strength living to meet the demands of your life. Today and next Sunday... I'm doing a two-part series of messages called Powerade. Extra strength living to meet the demands of your life. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how do you get more power? How do you receive the strength of the Lord? Some of you may not be in crisis, but you feel worn down increasingly. Others of you may be at a breaking point, and you're like, I've had enough of this, whatever this is. Well, how can you not give up and receive God's strength? Well, like all great passages of Scripture, 2 Chronicles 16.9, there's a story behind that, and there's a context of when that Scripture verse was first shared. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapters 14, 15, and 16. 
Over the next few moments, I'm going to give you a summary of what chapter 14 was, what chapter 15 is, what chapter 16 is. And we're going to talk about one of the kings of, of Judah named Asa. Asa is one of those tragic figures in the Old Testament. And we'll discover about his life of why that was. So if you have your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1 begins this way. King Abijah died. And his son Asa took the throne of Judah. Now you have to remember that back in those days, at this section of the Old Testament, there was a split in the kingdom of Israel after Solomon had died. And there was the northern kingdom of Israel that had ten tribes in it. And there was the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. You confused already? Israel is not fully Israel. They had a civil war and the ten tribes of Israel are still known as Israel. But the two tribes in the southern part of the kingdom are now known as Judah. And to make it even more confusing is in the kingdom of Judah is another tribe called Benjamin. But I guess they don't warrant to be said. They're not the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Benjamin. It's just the kingdom of Judah because Judah was so big, right? So you see that the kingdom of Israel is way up north and they had their own king. And then you had the kingdom of Judah. They're down south. That's where Jerusalem is. And they had their king. So Asa, after his father Abijah died, Asa became the king of Judah. Verse 2 says that he was a good king because he did what was right and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. All throughout Chronicles, and even in First and Second Kings, you'll see that, that there's a description of good kings and bad kings. The good kings are those who did what was right, good, and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And the bad kings, of course, were the ones that did not do what was good, right, and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. That's the description that the chronicler gives. Good king, check, 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 check. Bad king, check, 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 check. Asa is a good king. And he experiences in his first ten years... As king, peace and prosperity. Let the good times roll. And he built up the fortified cities and there was lots of infrastructure projects that were taking place and everybody was happy and things were going great. About ten years into his reign, though, there was a massive army out of Ethiopia and Libya that had a million men that decided they were going to come up out of Africa and attack Judah and try to take them over and destroy them. And it freaked Asa out. Because Asa only had 580,000 troops, and he's supposed to defend the land of Judah against a million men. And so what does he do? He cries out to the Lord and says, Oh God, we're in big trouble if you don't help us out. Oh God, we humble ourselves before you. We, we're, we're not the aggressors here. We're just trying to defend the land. Will you help us? And God gave King Asa a great victory, even though he was outnumbered, more or less two to one. And the victory was so great that the Ethiopian army and the Libyan army retreated down into Africa and... Judah went to follow them, and Judah ended up, at the end of the day, with more territory than what it had before the war. And they had a great amount of plunder. 
That's chapter 14. Chapter 15 opens up with a description of a prophet of the Lord named Ezariah. Now, Ezariah in chapter 15 is essentially a sermon. Ezariah comes to King Asa, and he speaks to the people of Judah, and he says a good word and a word of warning. The good word is this, King Asa, way to go, you rock. You trusted the Lord. The Lord delivered you out of the hands of an army that was twice the size of your army. And guess what? God is always going to be with you. And God is, if you seek God's face, you will always find God's face. As long as you follow the Lord, good things are going to happen to you, Asa. And then there was a word of warning. And the word, was, the word of warning was this. Asa, you're anointed of God. But if you ever turn your back on God, if you forsake God, if you don't seek God's face, that's it. God will forsake you. That word of warning and that good word came immediately after the victory over the Ethiopians and the Libyans. And so what happened was, is King Asa took the words of Ezariah the prophet to heart, and he said, yes, I am going to follow the Lord. And what's more is, I'm going to lead Judah into a revival that he had done ten years earlier. And he even, all the new territory that was taken after they won the war against the Ethiopians, he ended up spreading revival of the one true God over on that territory as well. Let the good times roll. Life was good. I wish that Asa's story stopped at Second Chronicles 15. But there's a 20-year gap between chapters 15 and chapter 16. Chapter 16 begins with, now Asa's an older man by now. Chapter 16 begins with another king of the north, the king of Israel. Everybody confused? Remember, there's the king of Israel, there's the king of Judah. They're all brothers but they're divided over a civil war. The king of Israel, named King Basha, decides that he's going to invade Judah and try to unify the country. And he's got a big army, and he starts the war. What does King Asa do? Asa goes into the temple. He raids the silver and gold from the temple, and buys himself an army from the king of Aram. His name is Ben-Hadad, and Aram is modern-day Syria. So this isn't a geography lesson, but let me just tell you something that's kind of interesting. You've got the kingdom of Israel up here, you've got the kingdom of Judah right here, and then crossing the Jordan River, you have the kingdom of Syria. So basically, the military strategy of Asa was, I'm going to buy me an army, and all they need to do is cross over the Jordan River and wipe out the kingdom of Israel. I mean, it made sense on paper, right? The problem is, is that he didn't actually consult the Lord. He just did it on his own. 
And then there's a second prophet that comes up. Ezra is out of the picture. He's dead. He's gone. God always has a man or a woman in place to speak his word. And chapter 16 is about another prophet named Hanani who confronts Asa and says these words. Because you have put your trust in the king of Aram, Syria, instead of the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army of the you missed your chance to destroy the army. Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and the Libyans with their vast army, with all of their chariots and charioteers? At that time, you relied on the Lord, and He handed them over to you. The eyes of the Lord searched the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. What a fool you are! I thought that was a positive verse. What a fool you are. From now on, you will be at war. Okay, what's going on here? Asa, instead of humbling himself like he did 20 years earlier with the Ethiopians that had the million man army, now he's all puffed up. And something's happened in these 20 years, and now he thinks that he doesn't need the Lord. He's just going to buy his way out of it. He's going to take out his credit card. And he's going to be like, no, I'm not going to trust the Lord to live within my means. I'm going to to put it on the credit card. And he buys himself an army. And God raised up a prophet and said, what are you doing? Have you forgotten that I'm the one who delivers you and that you can't buy your way out of this? In fact, You're buying your way into an army that you should be fighting against. These Syrian people, they're your enemy. And yet you're trying to play nicey-nicey to them in order to get them to destroy your own brothers. And because of that, God passed judgment on them. Now what happened to um, Asa? How did he respond? Asa should have responded like, King David responded to Nathan the prophet when Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. He looks, at, he looks right at David and he goes, you're the man. You're the one who screwed up this whole thing. And David humbled himself and said, you're right, I've sinned greatly. And he confessed it. You know what, you know what Asa did when Han and I confronted him? He threw him in jail. I don't want to hear you. Talk about shooting the messenger because you don't like the message. And then the next verse says this, and at that time, King Asa began to persecute his own people. So here's the question. Why is the story of King Asa in the Bible? Is it for mere history's sake? I mean, usually the chronicler, when he shares the different kings of Judah and the different kings of Israel, he kind of gives them a paragraph. Maybe if they're really important, he gives them a chapter. Asa has three chapters devoted to his story. In other words, the chronicler is trying to tell us something. More importantly... What do these three chapters in the Bible have to do with you? Why should they matter to you? 
What do these chapters have to say about getting God's strength? The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth to strengthen those who are fully committed to Him. Great verse. Why does the context matter? I'm convinced that most of us in this room really need more strength from the Lord. The question is, how do we get it? From King Asa's life, I see three lessons. Let me just give them to you. Number one, the key to receiving God's strength is to do a heart check. Are you really fully committed to Him? Are you really? There was a time when Asa was fully committed to the Lord, but somewhere in that 20-year period of time, something happened. Maybe it was the everyday life, day in, day out, living in relative peace and prosperity. You know, I've discovered this is a principle within my own life. I see it all across the board. For every ten people who can handle failure, only one can handle prosperity. You want to see more Christians ruined? Make them prosperous. Because you know what happens when we get prosperous? We get lazy. We drift a little bit. Hey, I don't need I don't I don't need to get down on my knees like I used to. Hey, I don't need to go to church as much as what I used to. Hey, I don't need to read God's word as much as what I used to. What why did God send Ezariah the prophet to give this good message and this warning message to begin with? I think it has to do with God fully understanding the nation of Israel and getting the nation of Israel to understanding itself. Because the nation of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they always had this this spiritual atmosphere of victory, failure, victory, failure, victory, failure. And here's the story of Israel. When they were prospering, they would serve the Lord for a while, but after a while they grew complacent and they backslid. They got themselves into all kinds of moral and ethical problems, and an enemy of Israel would come up and oppress them. This is, this is the story of the book of Judges, by the way. And what would happen is the children of Israel would get so oppressed that they would cry out to God and God would raise up a judge or a king to deliver them from the enemies of Israel and they would be, oh, great is our God! And they would serve the Lord for a generation, 10, 20, 30 years, and then they'd slide back down into prosperity and peace and they'd forget about the Lord and then they'd be oppressed by their enemies and then they'd cry out to God and then God would raise up a king or a judge and He would deliver them from the oppressors and then they'd be, our God is great! And then another 30, 40 years later, they sink down. That's the story of Israel. And you know why God sent Ezariah to give a good word and a word of warning to Asa? It's to say this. That's not how my followers are supposed to live. I have a better life for you. Your life is not supposed to be highs and lows and highs and lows. Listen, there's an abundant source of strength available to you. You can consistently follow me. And brothers and sisters, that's the way it is with the Christian life. There are many of you that are struggling, and you're up and you're down, you're victorious, and then you're sunk down and you drift back into your addictions, and then you're up and you overcome your addictions for a while, then you sink back down. And God is saying to you, that's not how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. 
Yes, you are going to go through lots of difficulties, but there is a strength available to you that you don't have to keep falling back into the old ways. That's why God sent Ezariah to give a good word and a warning to King Asa. But he didn't follow it. There was a time when Asa was fully committed to the Lord, but somewhere in that 20 years, he just drifted. And because he drifted, he got to a place of saying, I don't need God in my life as much as what I used to. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I'm the one who calls the shots. I don't need to read my Bible every day. I don't need to have my devotions. I don't need to come to worship. I don't need to do all these other things I used to do. I'm the king for crying out loud. So God sends another prophet named Hanani and says, how's that working out for you? Our strength is limited. But God's strength is vast and renewable and available to all who will humble themselves and ask for help. Last week, Holly and I were on vacation and we went to Knobles. How many of you know what Knobles is? Knobles Amusement Resort. And we got a cabin there, and our girls and their families and grandchildren came in. We just spent a week there. Well, we used to live in Elysburg a number of years ago, so it was always kind of like homecoming, you know, for us, for Holly and I. And so when we're there, we always go to the coal towns around there, because that's coal country up there. We go to Shemokin, we go to Mount Carmel, we go to Ashland, Frackville. And there's always a little town that we definitely go to, The name is Centralia. Now, Centralia had a mine fire in 1962. And the mine fire was started by four guys. The town of Centralia authorized these four guys who were firemen to start a fire to burn the trash of the town. And it wasn't the first time that it ever happened. They had done it on a regular basis. But this time, for whatever reason, the four guys walked away and it wasn't fully burned out. And the trash and the fire descended and it hit a coal vein. And it lit the town underneath on fire. Now, Holly and I lived near there, a couple miles away, in the early 90s. And I can still remember driving through Centralia and seeing the streets with no houses on them. And there was a big sign in the middle of town that says, Centralia, mine fire, our future. And there was always three guys that used to sit on a park bench right at the corner, and they kibitz. Anybody Pennsylvania Dutch? You know what kibitzing is? Harmless gossip. And, and you could, any time, day or night, these guys would be there. I'd be like, wait, you guys don't have a life, right? Every time I drive through, the same three guys sitting right there. I'd wave to them as they go by, you know. But so, Emily, our youngest daughter, was reading a book on the Centralia Mine Fire, so she said, Dad, come on, we've got to go to Centralia this time. And I want to go walk through the cemetery and see all the names of these people that were involved in, you know, the mine fire. And I want to see if I can find the pit that they dug to try to dig out the mine fire before it got uncontrollable. So we went there. And Emily and I are walking all over Centralia trying to find the cemetery, the garbage dump that started the whole fire, and we we had a blast. But I noticed something I'd never seen before, and that is 
if you go there today, up on the mountain ridges, there's a wind farm. And I thought it's interesting the contrast between coal, which is a non-renewable energy source, and the wind, which is a renewable energy source. And it got me thinking about the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord is a renewable energy source that will never, ever go away. It's never diminished. No matter how many people draw upon the strength of the Lord, it's always there because it's renewable. And you know what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Jesus says that anybody who believed in Him, that springs of living water would be inside of them. And that it would give them strength and lead them to eternal life. You have inside of you a vast supply of renewable energy. And His name is called the Holy Spirit. And you can draw on the Holy Spirit's strength anytime you need it. However, the eyes of the Lord search the earth to strengthen all those who are what? Fully committed to Him. That's the key. You want the strength of the Lord? You've got to be all in. You can't be up and down. You have to make a decision somewhere in your life that you're going to be all in with Christ. Doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. It means that you've made a decision to say, it's better that he run my life than me running my life. So how do you keep yourself fully committed to the Lord? Just there's dozens of things. I just want to mention two that are particularly meaningful to me that have helped me through the years. Every day rededicate your life to God and ask to be filled with his Holy Spirit. It's just that simple. Every day, every day, several times a day, Lord, I rededicate myself to you. And, and will you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Sometimes I pray that prayer two, three, four, five times a day. Lord, will you fill me with your Holy Spirit? I, I want to be topped off. I don't want to be on three quarters of a tank. I don't want to be running on empty. I want to be topped off all the time. Secondly, keep listening and applying God's Word to your life. Asa stopped having his devotion somewhere along the way. He stopped going to church. He stopped praying. He stopped listening to good Bible teaching and preaching. Who knows why? But it sent him to a dark place. A place where he didn't think he really needed the Lord anymore. Okay, the first one, if you're going to get the strength from the Lord, you're going to have to do a heart check and ask yourself the question, are you really fully committed to the Lord? Secondly, use your problems to press into the Lord rather than pull away. Use your problems to press into the Lord rather than to pull you away. Verse 7, chapter 16, because you have put your trust in the king of Aram instead of in the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army. When Asa faced an invasion from the north, instead of pressing into the Lord, he pulled away and he tried to tackle his problems in his own strength. Problems are a wake-up call from God saying, press into me. I'm not saying God causes your problems. I'm saying to live life is to have problems. And problems are an invitation for you to press into the Lord rather than pull away. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Number three, don't quit before the finish line 
Hang in there. There is a summary that the chronicler puts to Asa's life. It's found in verses 12 and 13. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. Yet even with the severity of his disease, he did not seek the Lord's help, but turned only to his physicians. So he died in the 41st year of his reign. I just got to tell you, that's just weird to me. You got chapters 14, 15, 16. They're given all of the stuff that Asa did, good and bad. And the last couple verses that summarize Asa's life, the epitaph of Asa's life, they're talking about a serious foot disease he's got. It's not athlete's foot. It's something else, and it's pretty bad. Now here's the question. As weird as that is to finish out Asa's life, you have to ask yourself, why did, the, why did the writer of Chronicles feel like it was so important to tell you about his stupid foot disease? Here's the answer. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Asa was a great king. He had 10 years of following the Lord, doing what was right and good in the eyes of the Lord. Man, when he had problems in his life, he ran to the Lord. Oh God, help me, help me. Deliver us from the Ethiopians. They've outnumbered us two to one. You've got to help me. And God did. Asa led the nation of Judah into two revivals. And yet somewhere in that 20-year period of time between 2 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 16, somewhere in there, he lost it. He drifted. He relied on yesterday's commitment. He relied on his, oh, I gave my life to the Lord back in 1993. Okay, fine. I'm glad you gave your life to the Lord back in 1993. Praise God. What's going on right now? Because it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And the reason why the the chronicler gives this weird little two-verse epitaph of Asa's life is this is what he wants you to see. Asa as an old man. He didn't start off that way. But that's how he ended. And he ended that way because he was so filled with self-sufficiency that says, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need the Lord to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what feels good. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm tired of following. And that's how he ended up. It's not over till it's over, right? Don't give up until you've crossed the finish line. So here's what I think. I think some of you are pretty close to giving up on your marriage. You can't take it anymore. It's just too much. Don't give up. I think some of you have battled with a certain addiction, whether it's a food addiction, whether it's a sexual addiction, whether it's an alcohol addiction, whether it's an addiction to cigarettes, you just name whatever addiction. I bet you some of you have struggled with that addiction for years. Approval addiction. And, and you're ready to just say, ah, oh, it's been decades. I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. Don't give up. 
I once had a fitness expert say to me that almost all the benefits of exercise are in the last few moments where you push yourself beyond what you think you can do. And it's in those last few moments that your body chemistry changes and the benefits of exercise kick in. And God, because He loves you, brings you to the breaking point. Just like little Mabel Francis standing there in the middle of the night, malnourished, cannot go on anymore, watching Tokyo burn to the ground, thinking that she could be a casualty of the war, and she cries out to God, and God gives her this verse. Some of you are at the breaking point. And God is saying to you, do not, listen, do not give up. You're almost at the point of breakthrough. Don't give up. So you may have noticed that um, there's some Powerade up on the altars. And it really mirrors the sermon series, Powerade, Extra Strength Living, to meet the demands of your life. So here's what I'd like for you to consider doing. If you need God's strength today, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to get up and pick up one of these Powerade, and I want you to take it home this week. So, what, what are you going to do with it? Uh, you, you do it whatever you want, just put it someplace that you'll see it every single day. How's that? You can put it on your bureau, you can put it in your car, you can put it on the top of your refrigerator, you can put it on the counter, but every day, you, you're going to take a look at this, and you're going to go, right, I have limited power, but through God's Holy Spirit, I have unlimited power to meet the demands of my life. Now, I'm told that the red Powerade will stain the carpet. So I'm asking you to not open the red Powerade until you get home. Or I'll have to deal with the custodial crew. You get it? Do you need power? I think God's people get tired all the time. And I think you need to experience a little bit of God's power today. So just get up right where you're at right now and just come forward and just pick up one of these if you need more power from the Lord. Just get up. Please stand. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are so good to us. You have an inexhaustible supply of power that we can rely on your strength. Sometimes we get really tired and we just feel like giving up. But we're reminded today that the eyes of the Lord search the entire earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed. So we recommit ourselves to you today. We're all in. 
We're, we don't want to do the up and the down and be the inconsistent Christian. We want to be all in with you. We want to break that pattern. God, help us to be humble enough to draw on your strength every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great day of the Lord.